Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are one who sees the vast number of people lost and you have a heart of compassion for them. We thank you that you do not have a hardened, indifferent heart, but we thank you that you are inclined and compassionate, you're merciful, you're full of grace. And uh, we pray, Lord, you would send forth laborers into your harvest, and we pray that even today you would send forth your word into our own hearts, and that we might understand it more clearly, that we might think it through, that we might have our minds uh, renewed and transformed, and that we might be a people who love you and serve you and make you known. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, I'd like to read from chapter 12 in the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, and here we read. Now about that time, Herod the king, that's Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, he laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, and delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. And this is the key verse. If you don't have this verse underlined in your Bible, I urge you to underline it or highlight it or do something. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on that very night, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the doors were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared with a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and, and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door at the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, ah, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had told him, had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. 
Now when the day came and there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have happened to Peter and when Herod had searched for Peter and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Whoever said, reading the Bible is boring. Whoever said that has never read Acts 12. Every time I read it, I am just filled with a sense of amazement because it's, it has jam-packed. This passage is jam-packed with all sorts of dramatic intensity, with all sorts of heightened urgency built into every line of the text. Here we have this Roman ruler, Herod Agrippa I. He is clearly abusing his God-given authority in order to gain favor for himself from many of his uh, subjects, many being the Jews at that time, the largest block of his subjects at that time. And so he knows that they are very offended by the teachings of Christianity. They also are offended by the huge amount of growth that's taken place by the church. And so he says, well, listen, I'm going to put uh, a real um, lid on some of this growth, and we're going to take and arrest one of their leaders, James, and we're going to put him to death. And so he did that. doesn't say why he did that other than for his own personal benefit. And then the apostle Peter also was arrested, and he is being held, as the text said, under this super tight security. He's got... Guards chained either hand. He therefore is not about to escape. And it's night. The, the setting of this text is the night before his execution. And the people of God, as we said last week, are facing here another fiery trial. The church lost another leader some years earlier, Stephen, who was executed by this angry crowd. No warning. And now James, another leader of the church, he's dead, and Peter's about to join him. The question is, what is God up to here? What is God up to in this passage? This chapter 12 of Acts contains a treasure trove of insights for believers in every age. The account provides this assurance of uh, amazing, sorry, an abundance of details that include things like specifics, clearly details that are so uh, amazingly set forth here. It, it, it speaks of an eyewitness account. It's clearly that Peter has given much of the testimony here. And some of what we read obviously is humorous. There are times when you sort of laugh at some of the statements. Some of what we read here is miraculous. That shouldn't surprise us when we read the Bible. Some of it is convicting, and certainly some of it is instructive. And as we continue our study of this passage, I want to ask the question this morning, how does faith, a faith in the true and living God, how does that kind of faith respond to fiery trials? Last week we noticed that in the example of one individual, whose faith was on display in this passage, Peter, his faith was demonstrated the night before of his execution in that he was able to sleep as sound as a baby. 
His heart and his mind were guarded by the peace of God that passes understanding. It's incomprehensible how he could sleep so soundly, and yet he did. And this morning we're going to consider the collective response of faith by the church, by the people of God, there located in Jerusalem. And I've got, sort of entitled this, their response of faith to this fiery trial was intense prayer. And I base that on verse 5, intense prayer. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now I want us to consider the answers to two basic questions as we try to follow uh, where I'm going to try to tackle this morning. There's so much here in this text, I'm just breaking it down with these two questions. Very simple questions, just to guide us in our thoughts here. Number one, why did the church pray? Why did the church pray? Number two, how did the church pray? So the first simple question, why did the church pray? Well, the first answer, obviously, is that these believers were desperate. They were between the proverbial rock and a hard place. And they had no other options. Think about it. What other options did they have? They had no way of stopping this King Herod Agrippa from his plan to kill Peter. There, there was nothing they could do to put a wrench in those gears. They were not about to attack the fortress. They were not about to forcibly invade this prison and remove Peter from it that night. They were up against a lack of time. They couldn't really wait this thing out and hope that certain the, the opinions of people may change or somebody might get sick. or what. No, they had very little time left here. It's the night before he's to be executed. And they knew that only God's intervention would rescue their beloved elder, their beloved spiritual shepherd, from his imminent death. So the first reason they prayed is because they had no other options. That's not a bad reason to pray, right? Sometimes God puts us in those situations so we would finally say, I've got to turn my, my heart and my thoughts to God and stop trying to work through this on my own. But there's an obviously much more relevant and much more significant reason why they prayed and that is because these believers prayed with a knowledge of God. They knew God. Makes all the difference in the world. There are many people who cry out to God in what we call a foxhole situation, which are in desperate need. Oh, they'll cry out to God. But these people are crying out to God because they knew the true and living God. They knew His power was unlimited. Because they knew the long tradition of, and, the, and the history of the people of God. They knew that the children of Israel were delivered by God from Egypt and from all those years of being in bondage there and from the grasp of Pharaoh and his powerful army. They knew the story of how God had delivered them, miraculously, powerfully, amazingly. They also knew that God, more recently, had shown forth His power in an indisputed way of raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And I would also remind you, and this is very important to understand here too, if you look back in Acts 5, it's why it's always important as you're reading through to catch the flow of what's happening in this particular account of history among the people of God. More recently, God had intervened. 
And he had released all of the apostles who had been held in prison by the Jewish authorities at that time in chapter 5 a few years earlier. God had released the church leaders from prison. He had done it once before. So it wasn't too ridiculous to think that they would turn to prayer and ask him to do it again. And of course, there's this long record in the Old Testament of God's people praying together. It starts very early on in the account of God's writings, the scriptures themselves. If you look at chapter 4 of Genesis, we read that Seth and his descendants held the first prayer meeting. It says they began to call on the name of the Lord. It starts there and we continue on. There are many, many examples of testimonies of people throughout the Old Testament affirming that God hears the cries of His people who are in crisis. And I'm just going to recite a, a, a several of them here for you. I've given you, I think, the text of Scripture in your notes. David says in Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. And then we have Jeremiah writing in that time frame. If you know the situation of Jeremiah, you know that the world had literally, his world had crumbled in a dramatic, almost like 9-11 fashion. And Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, in the middle of misery and devastation and disaster, he writes this, Lamentations chapter 3, I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. In the most difficult situation of life, you have heard my voice. You did draw near when I called on you. You did say, don't fear. Another example, Jeremiah 29, verse 12. God says, call to me, and I will answer you. There is so much encouragement and incentive recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures that obviously flavored the fact that these people knew that God was a God who heard prayers of His people. But Jesus Himself, the one who had come here to reveal most dramatically God to them, He devoted much of His teaching to the topic of prayer. Jesus provided on a number of times assurances that God hears the petitions of His people. We read some of those in our responsive reading. Luke chapter 11. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it shall be opened to you, Jesus said. On the night before He was betrayed, Jesus taught His disciples about prayer. And John 16 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, He will give it to you in My name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Here Jesus is talking from the context of the gospel. As he tells them that now he can ask in his name. Why? Because he is now the high priest who is going before God. He is going to make access now for sinners like you and me to come before a holy God and to have our request made known to him. It's the gospel that reconciles sinners to God is also the gospel that makes an incredible promise. It makes the promise that when we seek God in prayer, 
in times of need, we will receive grace and mercy, not justice. We will not receive a payback when we come to Him and get everything we had coming to us. No, we don't receive that, not if we're in Christ, not if we believe in Christ and have repented of our sins. We do not receive a long lecture from God where He wags His finger at us and gives us a long list of things that we should have done differently. It is not that we receive an attitude from God of indifference, of the crossed arm look and say, oh, brother, you again? That's not what we receive. No, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is through Christ that Christians now have an anytime access that permits us to enter the throne room of the King of Kings. That we have access now to come into the place of the, having an audience with the King of all the universe, the all-loving, compassionate, merciful, all-powerful, sovereign God and Father. It is God who urges His people who have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ to seek Him in prayer. As a matter of fact, and this is a great verse to write down, I encourage you to ponder this because some of us are reticent to come to God in prayer. If we're honest, we think to ourselves, I don't think I, sh- I deserve to come to God in prayer. I'm too ashamed to come to God in prayer. And a- After how I've lived this past week, how can I come to God in prayer? We've missed... You're missing the whole gospel there. It's not about you. It's what Christ has done for you that says, come on in. Don't be ashamed. He says, with boldness we can come and have access to the throne of grace. Proverbs 15.8, great, great text, says God doesn't endure. No, it says God delights. He delights in the prayers of the upright. So what should that... What difference does that make now in our thinking about praying when I'm in a time of need or praying about something that's a concern that I'm facing, that we face as people of God? What we should think of is that God is pleased when His people come to Him and seek Him together in prayer. He is pleased. He has a smile on His face when we come in prayer. second thing I wanted to think about and meditate on this rich text is how the church prayed. How the church prayed. As you notice there in the text, it talks about the fact that verse 12 says, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary. It's interesting how he knew where to go, which I believe probably must have been a very large home. I think this is a family that was rather well-to-do. They had a courtyard. They had lots of of uh, space within this rather large home. I also think it's significant because it was probably located in the part of town where other large homes were located, very likely in in the area where many of the Pharisees lived, perhaps. And that's why Peter is calming everyone down, like, would you knock off all this celebration because we're all going to make such a commotion, they're going to have me arrested again. But notice it says in verse 12, they went to the home of Mary, where many were gathered together and were praying. It wasn't just one or two. It was many. These church members, in facing this serious crisis, the imminent martyrdom of Peter, the one who they had heard proclaim the gospel in a powerful way on the day of Pentecost, who stood up and just 
in a very bold fashion, seized that moment and spoke of Christ in such a powerful way that many people came to faith. I would dare say there were many of those gathered in that room of that home who were those who had come to Christ, had come to faith that, that day. And they were, Peter was the human instrument that led them to faith in Christ. It was this church family that when this occurred and their beloved leader is about to be killed or having had another one leader, they what? They got together. They faced the crisis together. They gathered together to pray. The church was unified at this moment of crisis. And that's not too surprising if you have kept track of the patterns of this church in Jerusalem from the book of Acts with the earliest chapter there, chapter 1 on through, the church had this pattern of praying corporately together. They met in the temple and prayed together. They met in homes and prayed together. They prayed about selecting the leadership that had to be put in place to replace Judas, and they gathered together and they prayed about that before they did that. In chapters 4 and 5, they prayed together about the religious persecutions that their leaders at that time were facing from the Jewish authorities. So it's not surprising that they would gather together to pray for Peter in one of the larger homes of these well-to-do members. Now when you think about corporate prayer, one of the things that happens in corporate prayer is that it draws the people of God together. It is a powerful unifier. This united in prayer, to have people joining together who are fellow believers, praying together, they do so in an interesting way as equal children of God. They all share one thing in God, together. They are sinners saved by grace. They're, all the forms of hierarchy are done away with, whether they are a person that's been in there for the longest times or just more recently joined, a person who has a, a very eloquent vocabulary and education versus one who was a slave person who had very little education, who didn't have a very big vocabulary. All these people are joined together. They're all praying together. Those distinguishing characteristics are irrelevant. And think about it. If you join together with fellow believers and your eyes are closed, and you're seeking God and concentrating in prayer, no matter who's praying, can you tell who it is that's praying in terms of their skin color? Can you tell what status they are with their, their uh, socioeconomic standing? That's irrelevant at that point. The corporate prayer is a valuable work for everyone in Christ's church. Everyone who participates is doing a valuable work for the kingdom came across this quote by John Owen, that great Puritan pastor. He said this, The prayers of the meanest saints. Now he means, when he says meanest, he doesn't mean angry like, you know, a uh, person you want to avoid. He means the least. The least important, if you will. The prayers of the least saints may be, may be useful for the greatest apostle. And that's proven true in this account. Sad to say, the church that I formerly served in, in Virginia, prior to coming here, did not have a great sense of unity, by and large. The church was divided among family units, 
there was, in a sense, a family unit on this side called the Hatfields, and there was a family system over here called the McCoys. They had a long history. It was not a very pleasant history. It's not a very polite history, apparently, before my time, and even while I was there. But I will never forget the occasion in which one of the sons of, of some members in that church uh, in traveling in a school bus that morning, had taken off, and uh, the school bus apparently hit this bump in the road. It wasn't an accident that, that caused any damage to the bus. It hit a bump, and this particular student had no seatbelt on. There are no belts in the bus, school bus at the time. He's thrown up, airborne, out of his seat, lands on the seat in front of him on his chest, on his abdomen. And he suffered internal injuries, such that his liver was not functioning at all for a period of time. And so there was a concern that he might die. And I mean, it was the most amazing thing when the word got out that we were going to gather everyone and anyone together to pray. I think it was like a day or two after this incident occurred. He still was not responding correctly. They, they, the family was just torn apart and uh, concerned for this little boy. He was healthy, going off to school. The next thing you know, he's about ready to die. So we called for a prayer, a time of prayer. I'll never forget it. The church was packed. I mean, it was completely full, even up in a balcony, which no one ever used to sit in the balcony. It was full. And at that time, the disagreements that seemed to characterize so much of the day-to-day -day in that sad church life dissipated. Nobody cared about that anymore. There was a focus. They were seeking God. They were interceding for this fellow named Josh. All those petty issues that divided them were ignored. And we sought the Lord together for this young boy who was barely hanging on for life. Just to finish the story, he did survive, actually. And do you know that the liver does regenerate itself? And uh, it does... Uh, amazing how God answered prayer and how he turned around after that prayer meeting. I wish I could say the same was true for the entire church in terms of their relationships with each other, but in that moment, we saw the power of prayer to unite people. Now, my question is, I think about this church gathering for prayer corporately, and that's the key word, corporately. Is that intended only for something that's happening in a crisis? Is corporate prayer just designed for an emergency situation and that's why the church that's when the church is to gather? Well, I sort of showed you there's already a pattern that says that's not the case in the early church. No, there are many countless benefits. It's hard to measure the benefits that come to God's people in a local church who regularly join together in seeking the Lord. Who praying praying with other believers by the way is such a helpful instructive part of of discipleship for us. Because, be honest, when you think about people who have been influenced by the prayers of others, it is Mary who prayed when she learned that she was expecting Jesus, the Messiah. She began to quote who? Hannah, who had also been beseeching God and praying for a child at that point years ago. It was Saul, who later became Paul, who heard Stephen praying crying out to God while he was being pummeled by stones that no doubt had an impact on him in his prayer life. And not to mention the disciples who spent time with Jesus and literally 
prayed with him and listened to him pray. And he, Jesus gave them a model of, of what kind of prayer uh, should sound like and, 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 and sort of the topics to cover in prayer. And it's Jesus who invited them to special times and focus moments of prayer and listen to him pray. I must say, when I was growing up, uh, my folks would urge me to go to church with them on the middle of the week, and so we'd go to a Bible study and prayer time. And They used to divide between the men and the women, which at that point was some, just something they chose to do. Sometimes we stayed together, but sometimes they had the men go downstairs, and we, those men would get on their knees, and they would begin to offer up their prayers to God. I'm telling you, as a, as a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old young man, listening to other men pray, and really crying out to God made a huge impact in my life. I'll never forget it. I've forgotten a lot of sermons from that time in my life, I'm sad to say. But I will never forget the impression laid upon my heart of godly men seeking God on their knees in prayer. It's unfortunate we aren't able to kneel down in our church uh, set up the way it is right now. But anyway, back to the point here. Corporate prayer, the benefits of it. Well, the prayer meeting... As we've said before, knits together hearts of God's people. We are discipling each other as we listen to each other and have the promises of God turn into prayer. And here's a great quote that I came across by Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He says this, Prayer advertises that we are dependent. We are dependent. We are people who have great needs. We are depending on God. Prayer advertises that we are dependent and that God is dependable. That's what prayer is announcing. Years ago, probably back in the 90s, I was invited to accompany a number of other pastors uh, to attend a midweek service at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. I believe it was a Tuesday night or something. I can't remember what night of week it was. But uh, we were ushered in, well, first of all, they, they fed us, they had a nice dinner there, and then when they, they ushered us in, and the place is mobbed. And the only reason we had a seat is because they had reserved a section for those of us pastors to sit in. And so we, we were seated there, and things got started, and they had a couple of songs, maybe two or three songs, and then the pastor proceeded to mention prayer request with a time of prayer, then another prayer request and a time of prayer, another prayer request and a time of prayer. And it was just a prayer time. That's what it was. There was no sermon preached. There was no long exhortation. There was no crisis going on in the church. It was not an emergency. This was their weekly practice, and I assume it's continuing on to this day. I really don't know. But here the place is jam-packed. You can't even get a seat. Because they're seeking God together as a church. What a powerful lesson for my soul on that night. You talk about a benefit for a church. Absolutely. The more I've thought about that, I've thought about the fact that our church, each week, has designated a time in which we encourage people to share things they're thankful for and praise God together. And then we share things that are concerns and make petitions for other needs together in prayer. Every Lord's Day. 9.30 in the morning, not 6 a.m., not 5 o'clock in the morning at some ridiculous hour that's a little challenging for anybody to get there. 
9.30 in the morning. It's only 45 minutes long. It's not a very long period of time at all. It's not two hours. But it's an opportunity provided by our church leadership for the sharing of things that we're thankful for, things we're grateful for, lifting up our praises to God and also lifting up our concerns, our needs of our church and of our ministry partners. How I long to see that become the real heartbeat of our church. Now, I know that not everyone can attend that. I understand we do not have a very elaborate uh, children's ministry at that time of the day. I wish we did, and I hope and pray that we will. So if you're unable to attend that, don't hear me trying to put guilt on you. That's not my focus here at all. I'm just going to call you and encourage you to seek out prayer with other believers sometime else during the week so that you have an opportunity where you are joining with other believers and offering prayer. But anyway, um, I'm not the only one that has this burden to see this become something that's more well-attended. Even Charles Spurgeon had somebody come to him and complain. He says, listen, there's so few people that come to our prayer meeting here in this church in London in the 1860s. And so Spurgeon said this. He says, how are we to increase the number? I would suggest to you a way of increasing it is namely by coming yourself. If choice blessings are to be gained by numbers coming together for prayer, the way for me to increase the number is to go there myself. And if I can induce a friend to go also, so much the better. I just want to give thought as to why it's so helpful to pray with other believers. Because let's be honest for a moment. When we pray alone, or should I say, if we're praying alone, I make an assumption there, but let's assume, when we pray alone, isn't it easy to get sidetracked? Isn't it easy for your mind to go 16 directions on all sorts of things that are not pertaining to what it is you were meant and intending to pray about? And when you pray alone, isn't it easy to become focused Mostly on moi, me, my concerns, my problems, my needs, my struggles. It's about me, 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 dear Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. At some point, though, we have to broaden our sense of concern for what's happening in the world. It's not just us in the world. There should be a time in which you pray for your own concerns. But let's be honest. Also, when you pray alone, it's easy to what? Give up. You think, oh, I've prayed, I've prayed and prayed. Okay, that was a good, that was all seven minutes, you know? Not that we're timing it, but we just look, oh my God, oh, I thought that was, well, that's okay, that's good. And again, we're not on to, it's not about measuring how long you pray, don't hear me wrong. What I'm trying to suggest is, by praying with others, it helps us stay focused and to realize there's, there's lots of needs out there that I can join and take part in, become concerned. It makes me more thankful when I hear what other people are dealing with begin to be more grateful for the mercies of God. Those of you who have ever built a campfire, if you want that campfire burning brightly, strongly, then what do you got to do? You got to make sure that wood, once it's lit, stays closely packed together, right? 
Because if you take that wood, it doesn't take long, if you take that wood that's on fire and you spread it out and separate all those different pieces of logs that are burning, it doesn't take long for those flames to soon be extinguished, for the coals to diminish in rather short order. But when the burning logs are pushed together, they do what? They create and sustain blazing hot fire. I imagine some of you may be thinking at this point, if you really are honest with me, and I want to be honest, I really don't have that much desire to pray. I'd like to speak to that kind of thinking at this moment by saying, that is all the more reason that your attendance and your participation in corporate prayer is more essential for you than you can realize. Because at that point, you can say, I'm here today, I need prayer. I'm having a hard time in my prayer life. Would you please pray for me? And then you become a person that others can lift up in prayer, and the Lord can then begin to minister to you in ways that are immeasurably good. You can be encouraged by coming as a person who says, I don't have much to offer here. All the more reason you need to be there. I must be honest to you, we've had years and years and years where we had prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and there'll be times I show up and I'm like, okay, I am not here within my spirit. I'm uh, somewhere else in my mind. I'm just not with it this week. And listening to others pray, being humble to listen to other people pray for me, has been that which has helped, what? Reignite the flame of my passion for God and realize I'm not in this alone. We're with those of like precious faith. So I challenge us. Praying together corporately is actually quite a wonderful thing. Secondly, I want to mention this idea of how they pray. Another key word that is impressed upon my mind here is the word earnestly. Here they are in Mary's house. It's late into the night. We don't know exactly what time of the night it is. But obviously it's a time when Peter had been sleeping for a while, so we're assuming that it's in the wee hours of the night. They're still there praying. They didn't gather at that home to hear a sermon. They didn't gather to sing together. They didn't gather to, you know, uh, spend their time eating. Nothing wrong with that. Those are all good things. But they don't have James, the brother John there. He's already been put to death. Peter's still in prison. And we also read in the text, verse 17, that James, the brother of Jesus, and different other brothers who apparently were the leaders of the church, they weren't even there. So this is just, this is just a number of people who happened to gather there, and their purpose for gathering was not to discuss, okay, what are our options? What can we do? Let's strategize. The time for Peter's execution was only hours away. So the text says, verse 5, these believers earnestly pray to God for Peter. That's a very interesting term, adverb, earnestly. It really comes from a medical term referring to the stretching of muscles to their greatest extent. Stretching of muscles to their greatest extent. The idea is to say that their prayer was all out. It was no holding back. Here they were facing an issue of a matter of life and death for their respected leader of their church in Jerusalem. They were dearly loved by this, this, this flock of believers. And so it's the same intensity of this prayer that, that also was 
recorded of Jesus by similarly the same author. Luke wrote Acts, Luke wrote Luke. And so in Luke chapter 22, maybe you want to look that up, in the 22nd chapter of Luke, verse 44, on the night in which Jesus is betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets down on his knees to pray, and we read this. And being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. There's an intensity to his prayer, obviously. And the prayers offered on the eve of Peter's execution were not the kinds of prayers that are rote prayers. You just rattle them off because you had to memorize as a child. They're not just routine requests, but there's a sense of urgency here in characterizing that they are in great need and they're turning to a great God. They're desperately crying out for God to spare Peter from the clutches of Herod Agrippa. Interesting, as you read through the New Testament, you come across various texts of Scripture that encourage believers, because of their gospel privileges, to remember who they are and whose they are, and they're urged to be what? Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. That doesn't mean every so often seek God, but it means to devote yourselves to the ongoing seeking of God in prayer, keeping alert in prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. In the 12th chapter of Romans, we read Paul addressing those Roman believers saying, we are to keep rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and what? Devoted to prayer. Again, I'll go back to Charles Spurgeon. Sorry to give you several quotes of Spurgeon in one week, but uh, I've been reading quite a bit of him this week. He offers this reminder and encouragement to persist in prayer, to keep praying, to not give up in prayer, to persist he says this, some mercies are not given except in answer to importunate or persistent prayer. There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the bough. In other words, if you hit, hit a tree and boom, here comes an apple in your hand. It just comes off. It's so ripe. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with vehemence of your exercise, for then only will the fruit fall down. My brethren, we must cultivate importunity in prayer, persistence in prayer. And so I want to conclude this way. I want you to think about what are you facing in your life that gives you a sense of urgency to seek God? Do you have a family member or two? Do you have a friend or two or three who is bound and enslaved in sin question are you earnestly praying with other believers for that person do you have your own battle going on in your own heart fighting the battle of your own flesh realizing that you're struggling with your own sin are you earnestly praying with other believers is the soil of your heart overgrown with weeds of indifference, weeds of spiritual lethargy, and a lack of concern for lost souls? Are you praying earnestly together with other believers? 
Maybe you're witnessing to someone, and you've been witnessing to this person now for a while, and this person is having a difficult time letting go of the devotion they have to themselves. They're having a hard time. They don't want it. They're refusing to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. Are you praying earnestly together with other believers for that person? Are you troubled and concerned about our church here? At the smallness of our church? That we are fewer in number than we used to be? That we are fewer leaders than there used to be? That we have fewer children than we used to have? Are you earnestly praying with our like-minded fellow believers together for the situation we face? Now, I'm not here just to challenge us to pray. Next week, we are going to take time to look at what God did and the supremacy of God, the power of God, the amazing answer that God made, but I didn't have time to get into that this week. But I do want to leave you with a, a quote by Jamie Dunlap. When we pray together, our needs become public. When God answers, His glory becomes public. Let's pray. Lord, like a farmer spreading seeds and all different kinds of soil, Lord, we take this passage of Your Word and like seeds, we spread them into the hearts of all the people who are here today. Father, how I pray that the seeds will land into a soil of their hearts that really will begin to take hold, will begin to grow, that this challenge that we're giving to all of us, Lord, to pray together will not be something that goes in one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray that you would stir up our hearts, not because of just some feelings of guilt or some sense of obligation to try to appear as if we're keeping up with everyone else, but Lord, because of a heart that loves you and longs to see you work, out of a heart of faith that believes that you are a God who, apart from whom we can do nothing, that we are privileged as partakers of the gospel to have access to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might find grace and mercy to help in times of need. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of all of us Young people, young couples, middle-aged folk, older people. Lord, that we were joined together in seeking you. And that you might be so kind and gracious as to meet us at our point of need. And glorifying yourself. Teaching us what it means, Lord, to be humble before you and united together. And filled with faith. Lord, work it in us, we pray, for the glory of your great name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.